Many of us remember Vacation Bible School. We sang silly songs with elaborate hand motions. We memorized Bible verses. We drank little cups of juice and ate animal crackers. And depending on our age, we learned the stories of our faith through the cutting edge media of the day, from flannel graphs to puppet shows to well-produced videos of singing vegetables. But I think for a lot of people, this is about as far as we have gone in our exploration of these stories, particularly those in the Old Testament. And that's a problem. Over the next couple of months, we will be rereading some of the most celebrated biblical stories of our youth. But this time, we will be setting them in their proper historical context, which means that even though we may have heard the stories of Noah and Abraham and David and Jonah, we may have missed the point. I mean, they aren't really kid stories. So brace yourselves and break out the animal crackers. This is adult VBS. All right, so welcome. This is week two of our new summer sermon series, Adult VBS. Basically, we're going back to some of the texts in the Old Testament that we maybe have heard as kids and haven't necessarily dealt with the historical context and, and what the, those stories are actually meaning uh, as they're written. A lot of times, the, the stories that are in the Old Testament, they're given to kids, but really, these stories aren't kids' stories. Even as we looked at last week, the flood narrative, there's a lot of uh, uh, genocide, for lack of a better term. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of uh, big conversations to be had. And I don't know if as parents, when we tell this story that we focus on the boat and the cute animals, but there's a lot of things happening there that for us, when we go back into the ancient Near Eastern context, we can begin to explore what's going on in these stories and what the Bible was attempting to communicate to its early audiences. Tonight, we're gonna be looking at a story that I'm not really sure if it classifies as a typical vacation Bible school story or even a kid's story. It's the, the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, I know that this is going to break your hearts. There are no ancient Near Eastern parallels to the story of the Tower of Babel uh, tonight. There are motifs throughout the story that the authors seem to be picking up on. So we'll, we'll try to um, shed light on some of those as we get into it. But here is the text that we will be dealing with this evening. Uh, this is found in Genesis chapter 11. I have done away with the versification so we can just deal with the story. It's nine verses, Genesis 11, one through nine, and I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. I, did, I wanted to pause here for a moment and talk about some of the things that are, that are on display here in this particular text namely some of the alliteration that's taking place here. If you look at this last phrase here, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, this would be something that for an ancient audience, they would hear some of the resonances and some of the sounds of these uh, particular words. Le vena 
aven, we have a lot of the same root consonants here. And then with regard to the bitumen for mortar, it would be chemar, chomer. So some of this assonance that you see here in this passage, it's gonna be coming through. And actually, we're gonna talk more about that uh, later. I think I actually made an edit there and it got kind of chopped up. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, there are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. The word of God for the people of God. Let's begin with a word of prayer as we dive into this text. God, we are thankful for your written word. We are thankful that it points us to Jesus. We are thankful for the opportunity that we have to uh, get our hands dirty here this evening and to explore what was going on in the telling of this story for its earlier audiences. May we allow ourselves to be transported from a 21st century American context back into the ancient Near East to hear some of the resonances in this text. And may we be changed because of them for the present. May this text inform how we understand your work. May it inform how we understand the work of your son. May it uh, impact the way that we understand our role in the world and how we are to be your ambassadors for peace and justice and love. We pray these things all in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, one scholar, John Walton, who I've been kind of relying on him the last couple of weeks here, says the Tower of Babel is a short but brilliant example of Hebrew storytelling. There's a lot of things that are going on here in this passage. Let me back up. That's not John Walton. That's Gordon J. Wenham. All due respect to Gordon J. Wenham. Excuse me. He says the Tower of Babel is short but brilliant example of Hebrew storytelling. And we see some of that in the plays on words that really only come out in the Hebrew text. One of the difficulties in translating an original language into our language is to be able to take some of these um, plays on words and also the puns and the alliteration. Some scholars, in fact, have noted that throughout this text, there seems to be a focus on three consonants in the Hebrew language, uh, the bait, the lamed, and the nun, that, that spell out or at least provide the consonants for Babylon. And this whole text seems to be riffing on Babylon because this is what this story is about. And all throughout this, this passage, we see brilliant literary artistry at work. Uh, I did want to highlight some of this. This is actually the bit that was supposed to be erased from our reading of the scripture that I uh, accidentally left in there. Some of the um, text here. This is the passage where it says, they are saying to one another, come, let us, really it says, let us brick bricks. 
This is a dual use of the, the verb and the, uh, the noun in this, in this language. Nil, bana, levenim. You've got these same root consonants in, in these uh, two words here. The same thing in the verb for let us burn for burning. The author is doing some interesting things here. And as I pointed out, there's some plays on words here with the it will be bricks for stone, and it will be bitumen for mortar. There's a lot of things that an ancient early Hebrew reader would have seen kind of leaping off of the page, the poetic nature of the text and the, the artistry with which the author is, is writing. Again, Wenham says, man says, come, let us make bricks, where God says, come, let us mix up the language. Same root consonants here, or at least there's a handful of them that, that replay themselves in the verbs that are used and also the structure. The people say, come, let us go do this. And then later in the passage, God says, come, let us go do this. We won't talk about who God is talking to when God says, come, let us go and do these things. Most scholars would say that um, God is addressing a divine council. Throughout the Old Testament, it seems that God has this big boardroom table and the lesser deities or the angels are sitting around so that God can communicate and, and do things together collectively or to gain some um, ideas from the people around. We even see this in, in Genesis chapter one where it says, let us make mankind in our image. Continues on in verse three, the people speak to each other, whereas in verse seven, the Lord prevents them from understanding each other. Man tries to build a tower with its top in the sky to make a name for themselves, a shame. Whereas God descends there and sends them out into there, which the word there is sham. They're wanting to make a shame for themselves and God is going to throw them out into sham. There's plays on words that are happening throughout this passage that aren't necessarily seen in the English translation. We also have just the structuring device here of a chiasm, which the, um, the important thing to see here is in this uh, this centermost part where the Lord is coming down from on high to see what is going on. But we have this bracketing system here where it begins with the whole earth had one language and, and one of the last lines in the text is the language of the whole earth and each letter has its uh, sort of uh, mirror opposite throughout the text leading to this one thing. It's a beautiful structured retelling of this particular story. But as we're thinking about alliteration and puns and plays on words and even the chiasm, the structure that's used to, um, to tell this story, what's the point of all of that? And what's the point of this story? Well, primarily, it's another sin story in Genesis 1 through 11. Talk to me, let's get some feedback here. Genesis 1 through 11. What are some of the sin stories in those first formative chapters in the first book of the Bible? Adam and Eve. Yes, Hannah whispered that. I don't know if you heard her. She said, <laughs> Adam and Eve. Very confidently, though. Cain and Abel, I think I'm hearing over here, absolutely. What did we look at last week? Noah and the, the, the four verses before the flood account that we did not look at. Remember, the sons of God descended 
had intercourse and made babies with the daughters of men. I still don't wanna talk about that, okay? We'll just, we'll leave that strange bit over there. I will say in order to understand it, you have to deal with the ancient Near Eastern world because without it, it makes no sense. Even with it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So we have the flood story, we have the daughters of, uh, the sons of God um, making babies with the, the daughters of, of men. So it's within this context of these sin stories in what is called the primeval history, the foundational framing narrative of Israel's corporate life together. And this story fits into that. In fact, it stands as the, the climax or at least the, the end point of those sin stories. But here's the problem. The precise nature of the failure of the people depicted in this story, it remains elusive according to Terence Fretheim. And it results in various scholarly formulations of what in the world is going on in this passage. What's the sin that's being produced in this text that the author is wanting to address? Because we're having a good time doing some, some, some Q and R here, what are some of the potential ideas of the sins in this passage? I bet you can get some of the main ones. Idolatry. Idolatry, in what sense? Give me a couple like more words. Making a name for themselves through like, I guess, earthly power rather than like worshiping God. Good, a lot of people will focus on the fact that they're trying to make a name, a shame, not for God, but for themselves. That's a big problem in this passage. What else? They want to go up to heaven There we go. Uh, this is probably the, uh, the most popular understanding of this story is that they're attempting to build this tower up so that they can ascend into the heavenlies. This has been a, uh, an interpretive tradition all throughout Jewish uh, history, and a lot of Christians have latched onto it. I'm gonna actually push back on that a little bit as, as we go based on some ancient Near Eastern context. Anything else that you guys see or maybe want to throw out there at me? Potential sins in this passage? Pride, and that's gonna go along with the, the building. Uh, it might also go in with a couple of things that we might not be thinking of, particularly with urbanization, uh, some people would say, because especially at the end, it doesn't say, I'm ticked because of the tower. It says, I don't want them to build the city anymore. It kind of, the, the, the tower is like a, is a, an afterthought because it's the city that God doesn't want them to build and why God might not want them to build that, I don't think that we'd be able to connect the dots, but as I demonstrate, you might be able to, to see where people are going. Number one, it, it kind of ties in here. It's this, this sense of disobedience or the sin of disobedience for staying in one place. Remember, in the early chapters of Genesis, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And now we have a people group that's wanting to uh, kind of cloister into this one little spot. They find a nice plain and they begin to build up this tower and they just want to stay there and be comfortable. And some people are saying that they are um, going against the command of God to go and to be fruitful and to fill the earth. I think this is a bad reading of the text because they're actually doing what God has been asking them to do in the sense of they are reproducing and here, it's not necessarily a, a negative thing that they are wanting to be together. Some scholars would also say that you can't turn a blessing, namely go and fill the earth and turn it into a command that can be disobeyed. 
We're not necessarily going against the will of God if we are not being fruitful and multiplying. And all my single people said, yeah. <laughs> a lot of times in the church, though, we privilege that, that family unit and we make people that aren't having kids become a less than, uh, which is not biblical in any sense of the term. Some people said that the disobedience is staying in one place. Other people said that there's an element of pride in building this tower, this massive tower, and the beginning to ascend the tower into the heavenlies to see what God is, is in fact doing. Now, if you look at the ancient Near Eastern history of this passage, uh, this text is clearly informed by the building of ziggurats in Babylonian culture. Now, what you might not know about these ziggurats, they're, um, they're stepped structures. What's interesting about this is, in uh, contradistinction from pyramids, this is not open. There's nothing in here. You're building bricks around to make um, a structure, and then you're filling it with dirt and rubble. There's, there's no point to this level other than to get to the next level, and the next level, and the next level. There's nothing happening in here. At the top of the ziggurat, you have what some people in the Babylon culture would refer to as the Bob L, the gate of God. The author of Genesis is going to push back on this because they'll say that's not where Babylon got their name. They got their name from the root Balal, which is God confusing the language of the people. That's why they're called Babylon. But they are thinking themselves to be the gate of God because the gods would... Um, descend or be here. Some people have likened this to the green room. This is like the gods going down and like uh, sitting in their preparation room, uh, eating food and just readying themselves to make a big grand entrance into the temple complex, which is attached to the ziggurat, which is really what is important for the people. The people do not actually ascend the tower, this is where God is. The gods descend and then ultimately descend down into the temple so they can meet and commune with the people. That's fascinating, is it not? So here we have John Walton. I'm not gonna get his name wrong this time. This is not Gordon Wenham. This is John Walton saying, in summary, the project is a temple complex featuring a ziggurat which was designed to make it convenient for the God to come down to his temple, bless his people, and receive their worship. This understanding of ziggurats makes an important point drawn from the ancient Near Eastern context to clarify the biblical text. Namely, the Tower of Babel was not built for people to go up, but for God to come down. This is not a stairway to heaven. This is a stairway from heaven. So the sin there is not people um, being prideful, building a big building and attempting to go up. If anything, the, the, the sin there is attempting to break the plane of sacred space. The people were attempting to bring God into their own realm in this particular passage. Now, still, there's, there's some other ideas. Again, the pride of building a city, which is tied to a different pride, which is developing technology. Some people have said, look at, the, look at the Babylonians, where instead of using stone, they're making these big, square, nice bricks so that they can build these really nice buildings. But the author of this story is not saying, this is a great job, way to go. He's saying, they can't get stones. That's how you really build a building. All they can do is make their little sun-baked bricks that will eventually disintegrate and not uh, remain 
for very long. The Hebrew author is kind of poking at the Babylonians saying, you guys are using your bricks for stone, but that's not good. And you're using your bitumen for mortar because you don't have stones and that's not good either. It's poking at these people to say what's going on. Rob Bell in his book, uh, What is the Bible, really develops this, this idea of the technological advances of the people in Babylon, but it doesn't seem like that's actually the case. I will read you a quote, though, from a very esteemed Jewish scholar who says, uh, the polemic thrust of the story is against urbanism and the overweening confidence of humanity in the feats of technology. That's Robert Alter in his masterful translation of the Hebrew Bible. If you ever are going to double down on a translation of the Bible by one person, Robert Alter is your guy. It's $80 though, so maybe just borrow mine if you're into that. Uh, I'll certainly just make copies for you because you can't have it, okay? Um, But he's kind of pushing this idea of urbanism and urban development and also the overconfidence of humanity with the feats of technology, but I, it seems like we might not necessarily want to go in this direction. So we have these different sins that might be at the root of these stories. Some people have also said that it's an explanation story, and I don't think this should be an either or. I think this might should be a, a both and, because at some point, certainly this story worked as an, uh, as an ideology of explaining the unfinished towers. Okay, stick with me. I'm getting sweaty. Um, <laughs> A lot of times, the Bible authors looked around at their surroundings, saw things, and then told stories about why the things that they see are the way that they are. So it's potentially the case that as people looked around and saw the dilapidated or half-finished ziggurats, that they begin to have a conversation about why that thing over there is as it appears to be. Other people would say that it's an ideology explaining the diversity of languages, why in fact people have different languages, why when Israel goes into exile, they're in Babylon and they must learn the language of the people. Not everyone was speaking the same language and this is a story talking about the reality of the diverse uh, number of languages and the author is telling a tale to make sense of that and root it in Israel's past, explaining the diversity of languages, and then finally explaining the name of Babylon. But nobody would grant that much, um, much good stuff because the, the verb Balal has nothing to do with the noun Babel or Babylon. Okay, this is, this is a tale that is kind of like, um, it's something that people know, but it's not really rooted in historical fact like George Washington and his cherry trees or his wooden teeth or whatever else we say about George Washington here. So there's a lot of options. Sorry, was this yeah. written during the Babylonian exile? As like, okay, sorry. <laughs> you're, you're blowing my grand conclusion here, okay? All right? There's a lot of options with this, and how are we going to read it? I don't want us to have to pit all of these things against each other as if to to choose one. 
Uh, I don't also want to say that the, what I'm going to describe to you now eliminates all of the potential fruitfulness of the other readings, okay? But I do uh, want to demonstrate that we're gonna go in a specific direction, and Heather blew my cover. She's exactly right, this is where we are going because you have to understand the Babylonian context in order to understand what this passage is doing. And before we get there though, we can root that in the Bible. So you have Genesis 11, one through nine. And I read it to you, but I didn't want to go back and read you the genealogies because you guys would begin to gouge your eyes out with any sharp object that you find near you because they're, they're boring for most people. I think they're fascinating. Uh, they're worth reading because there's theology even in this list of names that shows up. But in the preceding chapter, uh, in Genesis chapter 10, we get lines like this. These are the descendants of Noah's sons. We mentioned this last week very briefly, the Toledot structure. This is the structuring device of the book of Genesis. I believe there's 10 of them, the descendants of X. And this becomes the beginning of a new story. These are the descendants of Noah's sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Children were born to them after the flood, and then the author begins to reveal the lines of these children, specifically uh, highlighting the three of them. These are the descendants of Japheth. I have this asterisk here because the Hebrew doesn't actually say that, but it does say, in their lands, with their own languages. Why is this a problem? Because in Genesis 11, they all have one language. Uh, literally, it's one lip and one word. They're all together in one language. So people have begun to try to figure out what this means. Some people have said this is, Genesis 11 is talking about the lingua franca. Other people have said this story is meant to go before. Other people have said different authors are writing this. Um, but here, all we need to show you is these authors are not stupid. The editors of Genesis know that Genesis chapter 10 exists, and they know that it comes before the story of the Tower of Babel. So here we have the descendants of Japheth in their lands with their own languages, uh, by their families, in their nations. We also have these are the descendants of Ham by their families, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then finally we have these are the descendants of Shem by their families, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Shem is actually... Uh, the progenitor of the, uh, the Semites, which is where Israel comes from, uh, and also the, the Semitic languages, this language family uh, that we find the Bible and some other uh, extra biblical languages. So here we have all three of these people branching out into these big family trees, and they all have a bunch of languages that are represented. And then in Genesis 11, it goes back to the story about one language and one people. Uh, Jared Bias and Pete N say, the story does not give an historical account of where languages came from. It's instead brilliant political satire as we move to the story of Abraham. Now we've been developing some groundwork for a sentence like this to land where you guys are. When you see the story is not giving you a historical account of things that actually happened in the way back distant past that explain how the different languages showed up. Instead, this could be a story that's meant to be more politicized. It's meant to be more theological jabbing. It's meant to say something about Israel's God versus the gods of Babylon. 
So it's saying it's brilliant political satire that's kind of lampooning the Babylonians. And also we need to see this, the descendants of Ham, it includes Cush, Egypt, Put and Canaan, and specifically with regard to Cush, he becomes the father of Nimrod. He was the first on earth to become a mighty warrior. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. You know how you've heard that, right? You're just like out at just get, grabbing a drink, and somebody's like, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. I dare you to try to work that into casual conversation this week. And if it fits, please let me know, okay? You will win a free t-shirt, the $5 one, not, not the nice ones. Um, the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel. And Eric and Akkad, all of them in the land of Shinar. That sounds familiar, right? Because the people, when they go east, they find a plain, where? In Shinar. And that's where they build their big tower so before this, we see Nimrod as the one, and don't, don't import like our own understanding of Nimrod into this poor uh, ancient Near Eastern individual here, but um, he's the father of these people, and then we get a story about these same people. Again, Jared and Pete say, this is a story about those silly, stupid, arrogant Babylonians. And when we come just to those nine verses and, and detach them from, from the very boring almost useless genealogies, we miss the hooks to, to link us there. And this, Heather, is why we have to read Genesis in light of the Babylonian exile. What time is it? 6.28. Perfect. Okay, so if you have Genesis 1 through 11, there's a clear Babylonian context to these stories. I wanna give you a couple, okay? Remember, the Babylonian exile is the massive moment in, in Judah's history where they're removed from the promised land and forced into exile, into a foreign land, and they begin to believe or think maybe God doesn't love us anymore because we are now out of the promised land, away from the blessings and maybe even the promises of God, and now we have to figure out what in the world we're doing. This was a bombshell moment in the history of Judah. In 586, the Babylonian Empire shows up and, and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and forces the elite of the group into um, forced exile. Some of the Judeans were able to stay there because they didn't really... Um, they weren't, I'm gonna say this, it's gonna come off real crass, they weren't worth the trip. So when the Judeans that were exiled come back into the land, there's a lot of tensions between the ones that have stayed and the ones that have come back, but we'll leave that for another time. Now you have this big moment when Israel is forced out of the promised land into captivity and into exile. Now think with me for a moment of Genesis chapter two and Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter two is the bit after Genesis one, the days of creation, and now we meet Adam, and Adam is placed where? In the garden of Eden, thank you, Kate. The garden is, is lush, and it's verdant, and it's fruitful, and it's everything that someone could ever want. You might say it's a land that's flowing with milk and honey, 
And Adam is, is, is given a, a job to do, namely to be God's vice regent and to reign and to rule. But God says, this is gonna trip you up. And these nasty NIV translators, it's not good that man is alone, so what does God do? Walk into my trap. <laughs> he needs a helper, so who does God create? No. In the best translation of Genesis 2, the order is God creates mankind, Adam, places Adam in the garden. It's not good for man to be alone, so God creates the animals. The NIV and other English translations turn that into a pluperfect, and it's now God had in the past created animals because Genesis 1 says so. Genesis 1 says that all the land animals are created before humanity, so therefore Genesis 2 must not be an error with Genesis chapter 1, so we have to begin to translate things in a weird way. But really the best reading according to the Hebrew of Genesis chapter 2 is creates man, places him in a garden, says it's bad to be alone, creates the animals, and then when that's not good, use your imaginations there, but don't go too far, <laughs> he creates woman, the climax of creation. Thank you, ladies. If we're gonna go in the Genesis one way, the last thing created is the best thing. But here we have these two people, they're given a command, what's the command? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what do they do? They do that. You might say that they're given a law, and when they break it, there's consequences. What are the consequences in Genesis? Exile. So now you're reading Genesis 1 through 11 through the eyes of Babylonian exile, and instead of asking all of the scientific historical questions that you really want to ask about where did we come from and how did it happen and when did it happen, the text is wanting you to, to see things very differently, namely Babylon has screwed up everything, and the story of Adam and Eve in the garden getting booted out is like a, a precursor or a backwards look as to what's happening right now. Also in Genesis 1, like you got all these Babylonian texts that are kind of pushing against the creation. And in the flood accounts of Noah, remember last week, there's all of these ancient texts that are Babylonian in nature where the, the Bible is saying things kind of uh, not necessarily against them, but the, the depiction of God that we have in the flood is so radically different from the gods of, of Babylon. And now here in this story, we see more Babylonian influence, namely, where did they come from? And what did they do and how did they get where they are? Again, Jared and Pete say, the story of Babel, it paints the fact of national language differences in a bad light, blaming the Babylonians for this confusing mess. This story points to a condemning finger at Babylon saying, you have been an annoying, destructive, godless pain in the side from the beginning. Genesis chapter 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel, it serves as an ending to the primeval history in Genesis 1 through 11. It's like, it's the end of all of the story of wickedness upon wickedness upon wickedness upon wickedness, and it's launching us into the new story, the beginning of the story, which shows up in Genesis chapter 12, it's Abraham. Because everything else up to this point has been jack. Adam and Eve don't get it. Cain and Abel certainly don't get it. 
Noah gets it for a little bit, but we didn't look at the story. When the boat lands, he plants a vineyard, waits a couple years, has a few too many to drink, and then his kids walk in on his nakedness, whatever that means. If you would like a good couple hours of Jewish interpretive history wondering what this is all about, I can lend you my library. It's extensive. So Noah's righteous for a bit, and then he gets drunk, and he's naked. He's just passed out naked in his tent, and his kids are like, hoo, 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 which leads to some curses. And then we have the story of the Tower of Babel. So it's the ending of all of the stuff, and it's beginning to this, uh, this new narrative of Abraham. It's beginning this narrative of what God will be able to do through Abraham, who represents Israel and the promises that God is about to bestow and the covenants that God is about to bestow on these people through whom Jesus shows up. I don't have a good like, now let's go serve the Lord conclusion to this particular teaching, uh, but I, I would be remiss if I did not talk about this. In the Tower of Babel, you have these people that have one language and they're, they're, they're doing some stuff that seems to be pretty shady and God's not a big fan of it. And in fact, God, God puts a kibosh on it and sends them out and scatters the people. And maybe there's like some storytelling about how the things that are in the world got that way. And there's certainly some pushing against Babylon, but you have this whole one language turning into multiple languages and people can't understand one another and can't communicate to one another and can't uh, work together until the Bible seemingly reverses that in the story that Jeff read for us in Acts chapter two. After Jesus is crucified and after Jesus is resurrected and after Jesus, well, after Jesus says, just wait, it's better for you that I go away because when I go away, an advocate will show up who will lead you into all truth and help you to remember the things that I've been talking about. And in Acts chapter two, we have this climactic moment which is known as Pentecost. And the spirit descends and there's uh, tongues of flaming fire and people begin speaking in known languages that other people can interpret. And then they begin to say, what's going on with these people? I thought they were from X, Y, and Z and spoke the languages of X, Y, and Z, but now they're all speaking and communicating with each other in a way that seems to go and turn around the Tower of Babel into this moment where we can now communicate and understand one another. And it fulfills the prophecy in the book of Joel that God will do work through the sons and the daughters and the men and the women. And we see hints of that in the story of Pentecost. And to read that in isolation from Babel is to misread maybe both of those stories. Now again, I don't have a, a, a rip-roaring conclusion for you, but I will say this, that in these stories that have wickedness upon wickedness and then the newness that happens, we see that not only in the Old Testament with, with Abraham, we see that not only in the New Testament with Jesus, but we also see that in the New Testament with the giving of the Spirit. And I know at least in, in our context, we might diminish the role of the Spirit, but may we not forget whatever it is that we are doing and wherever it is that we are, if we are following Jesus, if we have pledged our allegiance to Jesus, 
that his spirit lives and reigns in us and empowers us and in some way allows the wrongs of the world to be righted. I'm hopeful that that might be something that we can begin to hear, can begin to accept and begin to live in light of. Last thing, as I, as I look around the room and as I think about the stories that you all represent, a lot of times it's difficult for us to allow ourselves to be used by God because we diminish who we are, where we came from, what we have been in the past. And when we do that, might I suggest that we not only diminish who God has created us to be, but we diminish the power of the spirit of the living Christ living within us, guiding us, moving us into uncharted territories and empowering us to be the hands and feet of Jesus in whatever situation that we're around. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of TRP's weekly podcast. If you live in or near Salisbury, Maryland, come join us for one of our Sunday services. We'd love to meet you. If you're interested, you can get more info on our website, restoresby.org, or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash restoresby. If you're a regular listener, thanks for coming back. If you've benefited from what we do and would like to support us, you can share all your kind words and good vibes with the world by rating us on iTunes. Or if you're so inclined, you can give financially at give.restoresby.org. We'll see you next week.